chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. And this is a really interesting kind of dynamic. And um, it raised several more questions for me as I looked at it. Because um, some of it's really kind of countercultural. We read it and we're like, oh, that's, that doesn't sound fair. Or, or that even sounds a little bit mean. But as we read it, you'll see what I'm saying. It's in chapter 4, Ezra chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. It says, Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of fathers' houses and said to them, Let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do. And we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the heads of fathers' houses in Israel said to them, You have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God, but we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. And then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of King of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. This morning, I had three questions as I approached the text as I read it. Um, you know, in verse 1, it says, Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that, they re- that the returned Israel or exiles were building a temple to the Lord, they approached Zerubbabel and, and the heads of the houses and asked them if they could help build it. And um, I was like, oh, that's kind of neat. That's a neat thing it, that there's a cooperative spirit in Jerusalem that they wanted to come and, and join together. That's, I mean, it sounds on the surface really great. Wow, that's neat. God is also providing help to build his temple. He's provided all kinds of other things. He's provided all kinds of resources and so on. And now he's provided labor. And I thought, man, that is just a great thing. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make that one of my points of my message, that God provides labor, that he takes care of everything. But then we get to verse 3, and, and something interesting happens. It says in verse 3, but, right? So there's a, but, Zerubbabel and Jeshua and the rest of the heads of the father's houses in Israel said to them, you have nothing to do with us. They refused it. I thought, wow, what in the world is going on? Why did they do that? The question that I wanted to answer is, who were these people who wanted to help rebuild the temple that the children of Israel refused? Why would they do that? Who were they? And it doesn't say necessarily here. Right? It, doesn't, it doesn't tell us exactly what to look for and, and how to find it. So, so how do we come up with the answer? Well, one of the things as, as I was looking at it, trying to figure this out, I noticed that even in the text, there's some kind of, of uh, indication. Um, in verse 1, it, it starts out by saying that they're enemies or they're adversaries. So at, at first I thought, oh, God is even turning the hearts of their enemies to help them. But we can't deny that the, the text introduces them as adversaries. And then we see in the text that there's something about these people because Zerubbabel says, you have nothing to do with it. They refuse. So there's some reason why. And then we go on down in verse 4 and see the result of their refusal. They were turned down. And did they act graciously? Were their intentions good? 
Did they actually want to help or or was there more to it? Because in verse four, it says, so then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and and they made them afraid to build and they bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose. And so even in the text, we can see just a little bit about who these people are. They're not necessarily necessarily the great gracious people that they describe themselves. Let us build with you. For we worship your God as you do, and we have been sacrificing to him. They sounded so good on the surface. But even as we read this passage, we know that there's, there's something wrong with it. Something doesn't feel right. And so as I looked, I was trying to, to figure out, what is it? You know, where do we look? And if you'll take your Bibles, everybody make sure you have your Bibles open. This is what I did to find the answer. So you have your Bible, and you know in your Bibles you'll see um, sometimes there'll be these little postscripts or these little letters, these little footnote letters that will give you some kind of a direction. And so what I want you to do is I want you to look in mine in verse 2. It tells us, um, it gives us a little H. For me, it's an H right in front of the word since the days of Esradon or Esarhaddon. There's that little H. And that, what that tells us is to look over here somewhere in your Bible. So maybe in your Bible it's going to be down at the bottom. And you'll see that H goes to somewhere in the bottom. For me, it's in the center here. And what that H does is that tells me that, you know what? This is referring to somewhere else in the Bible. It's kind of like a concordance or such, right? Some kind of an index. And so some, of, some Bibles are much more specific or detailed than others. But mine, when you look at verse 2... And you see that little H, it tells me that somehow or other, 2 Kings verse, or chapter 17, verse 24 is referenced here. Does that, anybody, when you're looking in your Bible somewhere in this passage, can you see that? 2 Kings chapter 17, verse 24. I know Amy can because she and I have the exact same Bible. But hopefully when you're looking somewhere in this passage, there's going to be, so mine has several, several little letters. But it told me when I looked at it that I need to be turning to 2 Kings chapter 17 and I'll find out more of the answer to this question. So if you'll take it, put something in there to to hold Ezra chapter 4 and let's turn to the left in our Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 17. 2 Kings chapter 17 and we're going to look in verse 24 and see if that helps us to understand who are these people. I mean, when we read the Bible, I know, I know sometimes I get ahead of myself, right, when I'm, when I'm talking. And I'll start saying things because I've taken time to, to look through it. Or maybe what I've done is I've read through the commentaries all week. And so I've got other people that are saying this is what it means and this is what it means. And y'all get the summarized version. And I know sometimes I say it so fast or I skim over it so quickly that you're left saying, where did he get that from? I want to be really careful about that because... Uh, it doesn't take a magician to know these things. This kind of stuff is in the Bible. And so when we look at Ezra and we see who these people are, they're going to be somewhere else in the Bible. And, and where we find them is in 2 Kings chapter 17. If you look with me there at verse 24, we're going to start seeing who these people are, where they came from. In chapter 17, verse 24, it says, And the king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Kutha, Ava, Hamath, and Sepharvim, and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the people of Israel. And they took possession of Samaria and lived in its cities. And at the beginning of their dwelling there, they did not fear the Lord 
Therefore, the Lord sent lions among them, which killed some of them. So the king of Assyria was told, The nations that you have carried away and placed in the cities of Samaria do not know the law of the God of the land. Therefore, he has sent lions among them, and behold, they are killing them because they do not know the law of the God of the land. And then the king of Assyria commanded, Send there one of the priests whom you have carried away from there, and let him go and dwell there and teach them the law of the God of the land. So, the, so one of the priests whom they had carried away from Samaria came and lived in Bethel and taught them how they should fear the Lord. So these are people that when the, the Assyrians took the, the Israelites captive and off into, into exile, they replaced those people with people from a different land. They had taken them captive and brought them into exile, and they switched them up and put them where the Israelites were. And then there's a problem because God started to judge the people who were living in that land with lions. <laughs> and so that caused problems. It caused uh, uh, stress and, 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 and struggles in the people. So they complained. And, and so the king of uh, Assyria said, oh, it's the God of that land. We need to help them learn how to worship that God where he is. And so they sent a priest. And so it's, this is where we find ourselves now in verse 29, that they have a priest who's teaching them what God wants. But look at verse 29. But every, every nation still made gods of its own and put them in the shrines of the high places that the Samaritans had made. Every nation in the cities in which they lived. The men of Babylon made Succoth Benoth. The men of Cuth made Nergal. The men of Hamath made Ashima. And the Avites made Nibhaz and Tartek. And the Sepharvites burned their children in the fire to Adramelech and Anamelech the gods of Sepharvim. They also feared the Lord. They also feared the Lord and appointed among themselves all sorts of people as priests of the high places who sacrificed for them in the shrines of the high places. So they feared the Lord, but also served their own gods after the manner of the nations from, whom, uh, from among whom they had been carried away. These are the people that are now coming to the Israelites in Ezra chapter 4. This is the kind of people. And so that gives us a little bit of a perspective. These are the kinds of people that in the, in, uh, the book of Judges, God identifies them as the thorns. That if they don't get rid of these people, if they don't join these people, they'll be thorns in the sides of the Israelites forever. And this is what they are. In verses 7 through 10 of, of Ezra chapter 4, we can even see some of their names. This is a real situation. These are real people that are coming to Zerubbabel and Jeshua and saying, hey, let us help build it. But these people are not the kind of people that the Israelites want to help them build. In, chapter, in, in 2 Kings, we saw that, that they had learned to fear the Lord, but they never feared the Lord. They learned about it. But they didn't fear the Lord exclusively. They still made gods of their own. They still put those gods in Yahweh's shrines. They made all kinds of gods. They worshipped all kinds of gods. They made sacrifices to all kinds of gods, including sacrificing their children to these gods. It says in verse 32 of, of 2 Kings 17, they also feared the Lord. But that's not the same thing as fearing the Lord. They didn't fear the Lord exclusively. They feared him as a tag on. 
They feared this God, this God, this God, this God. Oh, and they also feared the Lord, which isn't the same thing. The first two commandments that God gives us is that there is only one God and we're not to worship any other. And so it's very confusing, these people. So when they come, they can with a straight face say, hey, we also, we worship the same God. But what they mean is they worship the same God their own way, with their own desires, with their own preferences, and with their own other gods. In 2 Kings chapter 17, verse 41, it says something that is, is terrifying. It says, So these nations feared the Lord and also served their carved images. And then it says this, Their children did likewise, and their children's children. As their fathers did, so do they to this day. And so when we look at Ezra and we see who these people are who are in the land, these are the children of the children whose fathers didn't just worship Yahweh, didn't just serve Yahweh. What a challenge. What a challenge. When I read it, I'm like, man, it reminds me of of somebody like Paul going to Corinth where he sees all of these other gods, all of these other idols, all of these other distractions. It reminds me of me when I get on Facebook and I see all of these distractions, all of these idols, all of these things that, that strive for and long for our worship, our attention, our money, our, our time. What's the harm in that? My second question there was, this is who they are, but what's the harm in letting them help? I mean, for goodness sake, it means we won't have to do the work. I mean, in this passage, it seems really, really abrupt that they're like, you have nothing to do with us. What would be the harm in it? Why wouldn't we do this? I wrote this. These people approach the, the leaders of the returning Israelites and they just want to be a part of what God's doing. Can't we just be a part? There's several things that we see here. The first one is that they weren't sincere, right? They're not sincere. Even though their words are, let us build with you for we worship your God as you do, they don't. I mean, they're saying things that we would want to hear, but they're not sincere things. Even though they say we worship God like you do, they don't. I mean, we saw that just a second ago in 2 Kings. They feared the Lord and served all these other gods. And their children did it. And their children's children did it. They are not worshiping the Lord the way God wants us to. Their attitude demonstrates that they're not sincere. They're adversaries. They're the enemy. When they're refused, they discourage and bribe and frustrate. Their words aren't sincere. Why shouldn't they help? Because they're not being honest. They're also idolaters. Why shouldn't they help? Because the help they give isn't to give glory to God. 
The help they give is to give glory to whatever they're doing. They're idolaters. They're worshiping and serving somebody else. They say they want to help, but they're really trying to take advantage. And we'll see that later on. You and I need to take this thing very, very seriously. Because you and I are surrounded by people who say they are Christians. They say they love the Lord. They say they worship. But their lives don't look like it. Their attitudes don't look like it. And they're idolaters. They, have, they are worshiping gods of their own creation. They're serving and, and giving to and tithing to all of these other things. They're idolaters. This is something that you and I need to, need to really consider. As we see this, these guys take a really, really hard stance. They're idolaters. It's interesting... Uh, If they did worship the way the Hebrews did, then there would be an altar there. But when we started this story, there was no altar to Yahweh. If they truly did worship God the way he commanded, there would be a temple there, right? There would be the process by which God is worshipped, but there wasn't. These individuals are not sincere. They're they're not doing worship the way God intended. And this is a big deal for us. This is something for you and I to look at when, when missionaries come and ask us for support. And they say, we serve the Lord God. And we want your money to go and, and take this message. You and I need to be careful like Zerubbabel, like Jeshua. We need to see, are they worshiping the God that we worship? Do they preach the gospel that we are preaching? And at the very least, this passage serves as an example for you and I to be discerning in that way. I mean, these guys were offering to help. And Zerubbabel and and Yeshua and the heads of the household were like, you know what? I don't think that's going to be the way it goes. We need to be discerning it. At the very least, we need to ask questions. Do we support these people who say this thing? Do they mean it? And we think of neighbors who call themselves Christians, but live like the world and try to persuade you to compromise along with them. When they come in, do we want to share with, with their message? Or family members. Family members who try to impose political messages or health messages or or feel-good psychological messages or economic messages on us. We need to be discerning. These kind of things often are idolatry and they lead to idolatry. And the danger that we have today as we see this is the same danger that caused these people to be cast into exile to begin with. From the very beginning, God said, destroy these idolaters from among you. If you don't, they will stay among you and they will lead you to worship somebody other than me, is what God says. All the way through the Old Testament, we see this picture of these outside influences coming in. I mean, that was one of the things that frustrated Samuel when the people came and said, give us a king like all the other nations. So often throughout, 
The command for the king was not to marry a bunch of women. But we see in the life of Solomon that he married 700 women. He had 300 concubines. And it says that their their idolatrous hearts led him away from the Lord. All of these things going on in the minds of Zerubbabel and Joshua, knowing that this kind of thing is a thorn in the side. And they were returning from the exile caused by this. And so they're very, 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 very particular. And what was the proper response? I mean, for me, it was like, is it even fair to refuse their help? They just want to help. But Zerubbabel and Jeshua and the rest were set in their determination. When we read this, they say this, you have nothing to do with us. The proper response for this kind of combination of of idolatry and, and true worship, it needs to be separated permanently. We see this here. These guys, their their understanding was resolute. They said this, you have nothing to do with us in building a house for our God. They were resolute. There was no compromise here. In our culture of fairness and tolerance, We need to be thinking about this. We need to know the history. We need to know the doctrines. We need to know the truth about what God requires of us. We need to be courageous enough to risk our very lives in order to stand for what God is saying. These are their enemies. If they refuse them, they're not just not getting help. But they could lose their land. They could lose their tactical advantage. They could lose this battle. But they're resolute. They don't say derogatory things about these people. They don't go into deep detail trying to explain themselves in a way that makes these people feel good about themselves. Zerubbabel and Jeshua and the the heads of the father's houses, they know their history. They understand that they're no better than their ancestors and they have seen and are seeing that it is God alone who is delivering them. They're resolute. We don't need the help of idolatry. We have God firmly, powerfully. Therefore, they're being very careful to keep, careful to keep their focus and the focus of their people and their families from being distracted or being diluted. Man, this is a big deal. Dads, this is a big deal. This kind of a, of a resolution is something that is desperately needed in our homes. We are desperate to not let the world in. We are desperate to stand in the light firmly and to have no darkness whatsoever. We are desperate for this kind of resolution. He doesn't play around. He doesn't say, you know what? We want to be really careful. So we're only going to let you do just a little bit of stuff and not around us. No, this is the same kind of language that Paul uses. Put to death the sin that is in your members. Stop connecting with. Stop identifying with. Stop hanging out with. You are to be in the world, but you're not to be of the world. 
When we read this, he's very clear. You have nothing to do with us. Very, very resolved. They are resolute. The response is also something that's encouraging for me as a pastor. Because not only are they resolute, they're united. Think about that. They're united. It's not just a bunch of little Israelite fiefdoms rolling around doing whatever and, and, and you know, the general consensus wins. It says this. He says, we alone will build to the Lord. Man, they're united. That's so important. He says, you have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God, but we alone, we alone will build to the Lord. They're united. This kind of mission is almost impossible to do alone. I mean, in the Bible, we do see people that do things alone, and it's amazing. David stands alone before Goliath. We see Daniel alone before Nebuchadnezzar. But man, so many other times we see the body, the group of people. Moses with Aaron standing together. Moses with Aaron and Joshua united, standing before the world. This kind of fortitude comes naturally as we're joined together in our dedication and in our resolve. That's what they're doing. They're not intimidated by everybody else. Just like the surrounding nations influence the people, God works in his people to be united as he works in them and through them. This is a powerful thing for you and I. To be united. We alone. Us together. That's powerful. He's standing there with with his delegation. Zerubbabel, Yeshua, all of the leadership. And says to these people, we will do this by ourselves. This is for us. Man, what a great thing. What a great thing. As we go through the rest of this book, we're going to see it more and more. God at work through the leaders that he has placed over his people to grow their understanding of his purpose and his plan. This testimony is more than just a statement of faith. It is an actual statement. It's a testimony that God is important enough to us that we will stand together to serve him in the face of all kinds of struggles. This is what holiness looks like in a very real way. Being separated to God. These believers are separating themselves from the world and saying, we are doing this God's way. Not God's way and somebody else's way. Only God's way. Wow. This morning as we, as we think about it, what can we, what can we do? What, what, what needs to be going on in our mind? As I read it, it gives me confidence. When I read this, it gives me confidence in the Lord's provision, regardless of, of what the situation is or the people that are involved in it. These people don't worry about what other people think. They don't worry about how it looks to other people. They know what the truth is. And that gives me confidence as I stand and I say, this is what the Lord says. And it ought to give us confidence. Moms, it gives you confidence. Knowing God's word and saying, you know what, look, I'm going to stand firm. 
I remember a night, I, I think I've told you this before, but I remember a night at, at, uh, at a church I was at in Kentucky, and there was a couple of kids in the, in the congregation that were extremely rebellious, extremely rebellious. And uh, um, they had a lot of problems at school, um, and these teenagers were, were causing quite a, a problem at home. And uh, one of the, the dad called me and said, I'm really struggling with, with so-and-so, and I don't know what to do. And whenever I tell him, he says, you don't, you, don't, you don't have any authority. You don't scare me. You can't do anything to me. And he said, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do, Steve. And I said, man. So I got on the phone and I called about 10 other guys in the church. And I said, hey, guys, can you come with me? I know it's 11 o'clock at night, but can you come with me? We need to go over to, to so-and-so's house. And we go over there and we knock on the door. Dad opens the door and he goes, what are you doing here? And I said, hey, I, I want your son to know that, it's, that you're not alone. You're not alone. We are all here for you. And so we went and got his son, and, and, and all of us were just like, hey, man. Every single one of us told him that, hey, listen, you know the confidence that that gave that dad and that mom? They were all alone in their house, and their world was falling apart. But they weren't alone. We were all there. You know, when, when I struggled at that church, and I had some, some difficulty and my heart was breaking. Some of those same men came to me and stood with me. When we read this kind of a passage where we see the enemy coming and he's coming covertly. He's coming under the radar. He's coming at them to, to, to do something wrong, to do something destructive. And we see that they stood together for the truth. That gives me confidence. That helps me out. I want us to think about that this week. We are not alone. God is providing. All the way through this story, he's been working in their hearts to draw them back to Jerusalem. He's been working to provide for their needs and to give them confidence in his sovereignty. He's been faithful to keep his promise and to show it to them over and over and over again. We can be confident when we stand for the Lord. We can be confident when we stand together. Alone will be deceived. Alone will be distracted. Alone will be discouraged. But with Christ, we will live together. Another thing that affected me this week was that I need to be really thoughtful as I live in this world. I mean, I need to be thoughtful, right? The youth read in Joshua where Joshua was taking over the promised land. And the command was to destroy all the nations. Well, this city of Gibeon, they said, oh my goodness, we've got to make a covenant with Joshua and the people of Israel so they don't destroy us. Even though they were just right down the road, they packed their bags, their old bags, and, and they put moldy bread in it and old wine, and, and they made nasty clothes, and they acted like they traveled forever to get there. And they pulled the wool over Joshua's eyes. You and I need to be thoughtful. This world is full of lies and deceptions. You and I need to be careful. We don't just need to support the first missionary that comes and says, hey, I'm a missionary for Jesus. We need to be thoughtful about that. We don't just need to let our neighbors say, no, I'm a Christian, I get it. We don't need to let them just say that. We need to be thoughtful and respond appropriately. We need to be discerning. 
We need to be able to judge between good and evil. We need to be able to understand intentions and motives. Well, how do we do that? Well, I'm reading in Proverbs right now. The, the first two or three chapters says this is how you do it. By reading and understanding and knowing and inclining your heart and hearing God's word. We need to do that. We need to be educated. We need to know our history. We need to remember things. We need to have courage. We need to communicate with each other and our children. We need to think about what unity is. You and I are faith evangelical church. We are together. We need to stand together. This is part of what the author of Hebrews is is working towards when he says, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. We need to be united. We need to be united in what we know, what we believe. We need to be united in these things through Christ. We need to communicate with each other. We need to be doing that more and more. Not just simple social communications, but real truths. You do not know what fellow Christians might be going through. We can't read minds. We need to get involved. We need to take the time to point them to the truth. We need to be those kinds of people who say, listen, we have nothing to do with that. I'm sorry if that hurts your feelings. I'm sorry if that makes you feel uncomfortable. But maybe that means you need to look at your life a little better. But this is where we stand. We need to do this. Families, we need to fight against the outside influences that are constantly seeking to destroy our faith and our worship. We need to take this seriously. They refused to let these influences into their lives. Maybe we need to turn off our social media a little more. Maybe we need to turn off our politically divisive TV shows and radio programs. Maybe we need to stop filling our souls with hateful opinions of others. You and I need to think about how we fight against these outside influences. And we need to get into the word and let it dwell in us richly. Knowing Christ. Loving Christ. Do we do this by ourselves? Am I saying to you, go do this? Am I saying you, go do that? Jake, you do this, right? Raymond, you do this. Clayton, you do this. Am I saying that? No, I'm saying we need to do this together. This needs to be what we do. We put to death the sin that is in our members. We put off the lusts of the flesh together. We put on love and kindness and peace and grace and truth. We do that together because Christ has worked in us. We have God on our side. We, church, need to trust him. These kinds of things are impossible for us to do alone. But church, we are not alone. We are not alone. Jesus is at work in those who are his children. Jesus is at work around us. We need to repent. Together we need to trust him. Jesus has been providing for us. He has been revealing his sovereign care for us. We need to have faith in him. We do in this world. 
We've talked several times about our history and our place in this community. God has placed us here to do what Zerubbabel and Joshua and the heads of the households have done. To stand for the truth of Christ because we have Christ. We've talked about that time and time again in the book of Ezra. God stirred them up. God carried them. God provided for them. Today, I'm not saying we as a church need to do this by ourselves, but God is at work in us. He's revealing to us, as even we read this passage, that you and I need to stand firm in our community. We don't need to be united with unbelievers. We need to be separate and distinct from them. We have God's word. We have God's will. And we need to stand that way. Jesus has been and always will be faithful to do exactly what he says. You and I, we need to look to him. We need to love him. His word is truth. It is still truth. It is always truth. We need to know him. We need to share him. This is a helpful passage today. This is a helpful passage for me. It says in verse 3, But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the heads of the father's houses in Israel said to them, there was an active, purposeful response. We need to be God's activity in our community. It's interesting because Jesus Christ came to do this. You and I don't do it on our own. But we have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer we who live, but Jesus Christ who lives in us. When we say we need to do this, we're not just saying you and I. We're saying you and I and the Lord Jesus. He'll never leave us or forsake us. Our purpose and his plan is that we would make the the world know of his grace and his glory. Let's love him, let's stand for him, and let's live for him, for his glory's sake. Let's pray. Good Lord Jesus, I ask that you work in our souls today. Help us to know you and love you. Lord, help us to be discerning, to understand. Lord, also help us to be resolute. Help us to be united for your glory's sake. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.